Hey, thank you for getting out in this mini blizzard. I also want to say, uh, if you weren't here for Sunday school, you don't know what you're missing. It's just a real blessing. Brian taught this morning on evangelism. And uh, just so you'll understand what a well-oiled machine this is, uh, that Sunday school fits hand in glove with what we're going to talk about today. Despite the fact that uh, that Sunday school was set last spring and uh, nobody had any idea who's going to be teaching or what they're going to be teaching about today, it's well-oiled, just not by us, okay? Amen. Amen. Okay. Uh, Last month, we started on the same passage we're going to talk about today, looking at the claims of peace, both true and false. Uh, And earlier, we talked about how false prophets can deceive. But this passage that we're talking about today is about self-deception. And we saw how self-deception can cause even those who have right doctrine, enthusiasm, and good works to acquire a false peace. In other words, they think because of those things that they're saved, but they're not. And of course, you know, this is not a politically correct statement in the church today. And in truth, it is a very, very hard saying. But it is the the words of Jesus nonetheless. He says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter into the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many wonderful works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. And last time we acknowledged that Jesus is referring here not to the worldly lost, but to folks who presumably are in the church and who are orthodox. They teach and believe the right things. They do good things. They prophesy, cast out demons, wonderful works, all in the name of Jesus. And yet Jesus says to them, He has never known them. They're not saved. Rather, they're sinners without hope. And they're clueless. And because he's speaking of the day of judgment when he'll he'll separate the sheep from the goats, yeah, this is forever. Therefore, there's no greater warning than this one. Yeah, and there's multiple dangers to this this self-deception. He quantifies the extent of the self-deception. Many will say to me, You know, by itself, the word many could just mean a great number, but yet a small portion of the people who are in the church. However, when we consider what Jesus has told us already, that the gate is straight or difficult, and the the way is narrow that leads to life, and those who find it are few. That helps us understand that when what Jesus is really saying here is that many means most. And whatever the number, that's a shocking statement. Amen. 
Now, this warning of self-deception is seen in the parables of the ten virgins, five of whom are unprepared for and miss the bridegroom, then beg to get into the wedding feast, but they're told at the door, I do not know you. And immediately after that, in Matthew 15, we see the, the warning of the servant who simply held on to what the master had given him. He didn't lose it, but he didn't do anything with it. And this worthless servant, Jesus calls him, was cast into outer darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Immediately after that, we hear the warning to the goats who can't figure out that by neglecting the least of these, they were in fact neglecting Jesus. Finally, it's in the last section of the Sermon on the Mount to which we'll eventually get about the fool who builds his house on the sand. And the thing that stands out about all these people is their understandable and utter surprise, their outright astonishment that they're left out on that day. What what should be clear by now is that chapter 7 of Matthew looks to the day of judgment. It starts with, judge not that you be not judged. And from there, warns over and over again about the consequences of not taking that day seriously. The folks Jesus is talking about here assume that they're saved. Upon what do they base that assumption? Well, they said, Lord, Lord, and all the things they prophesied and did all those mighty works, all in his name. All this belief and activity has, been, has given them a false peace, a false assurance of their salvation. But on that day, Jesus says, they'll be totally surprised to find out they've been deceived, self-deceived. Just as Jesus said to the Pharisees in Luke 16, you are those who justify yourselves before men, but God knows your heart. For what is exalted among men is an abomination in the sight of God. So you and I should shudder to think of how many have this false peace. Not in the world, but in churches meeting this morning. Some things you and I just cannot objectively know, like whether people in churches are worshiping in spirit and truth, and whether they're paying attention and learning from the message so they can apply it in their lives. You know, but not to say that we can make judgments, but you can get a hint after the service if people are talking about uh, the preacher's personality or how attractive he was, or, or maybe the music, or the peripherals. You know, it kind of gives you a hint of what's going on in the hearts. You know, ideally, we're learning something from the message, and we're regurgitating it. We're talking about it, and we're bringing it up, and what, what do we have questions or concerns about? Those are the kinds of things that we should be talking about. A hypocrite, one who pretends to be something he's not, pretty easy to spot, okay? You and I all know that those people are pretty obvious. But much more difficult to discern is the person who not only misleads others about his spiritual spiritual state, but he's misleading himself 
he does not pretend because he actually believes he's saved. It's about an unconscious hypocrite that Jesus speaks in this passage. And if a person is an unconscious hypocrite and totally deceived himself, what can he possibly do about it? You've heard the statement, no one is so blind as he who will not see, who refuses to see. This is worse. This is about somebody who thinks he's seeing, but he's actually blinded to the truth. And so the answer to this dilemma is to first learn and understand the causes of self-deception and then examine ourselves in light of those causes in order to be completely honest with ourselves. Now, it's neither pleasant nor popular, but the Word warns us repeatedly to examine ourselves, try and prove the spirits, test all teaching and views against against the Scriptures. So, Let's start to do that, and let's talk about the causes of self-deception. And the first one I want to mention here is when I assume that mere statements save me. You know, the Bible says in Acts 16, Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and you will be saved. In 1 John 4, Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him, and he in God. 1 John 2, Whoever confesses the Son has the Father also. In Romans 10, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. All true. However, verses like these can be misunderstood and explained incompletely to leave the hearer with the impression that all he has to do is say or pray something and salvation will come. As long as he's acknowledged with his mouth, he is automatically saved. And I know as a young, very young Christian in college, and I went off to a major ministry conference on witnessing, and it was all about getting somebody to pray the prayer. And it certainly is the case, I think you can agree with me, that when somebody prays the prayer for salvation, you and I don't know for sure that it's genuine. Okay? Now, just imagine the following scenario. Campus evangelist comes and he sees a co-ed, and he goes up and he starts to talk to her and eventually get into the gospel. And then he makes an invitation to invite Jesus into her heart. And all she wants to do is get away from this persistent stranger. And she figures the easiest way is just to go along. So, she repeats the prayer, and then he expresses joy that she is now saved. And if they never see each other again on campus, they will see each other again in heaven. She says, thank you. He departs, and she doesn't give it another thought. Until a while later when she becomes attracted to a young man who's a Christian. And he's attracted to her, right? That's how how it kind of happens. But eventually he becomes convicted and he says, you know, I can't really have a relationship and I certainly can't be married to somebody unless they're saved. Then she remembers. The evangelist said, you were saved because you said those words. 
And she explains that to him, and guess what? He's delighted. Ticket punched. Now, if that young man is as undiscerning and incomplete as the evangelist was before, do you think it might be possible that these two might have some problems down the road? You see what I'm saying? Satan can use anything to deceive. Lack of discernment, emotions, hormones, even incomplete evangelism training. Uh, It's at this point that I need to make a uh, clarification. Christy and I were out on a date the other night, and we started to talk about this message. Pretty romantic date, wasn't it? And I started to explain what it was about, and, and after a point, Christy got a concerned look on her face. And these aren't the exact words, but in effect, this is what was communicated in love. Now, Kent, you know you've got a big foot. Yeah. No, the one between your nose and your chin. And if you're not careful you could impress that firmly on the toes of some people. Okay, like who? Well, you know, just some parents of young children and VBS workers, that's all. So please hear me clearly. I am not saying that your precious little one who prayed the prayer is not saved. Okay? We've got at least three children who never made it out, the, out of the womb. And I believe God is just and that they're saved. What I am saying is this. Be sure, as sure as you can. You know, there's an old uh, black and white TV show uh, led by a guy named Art Linkletter. It's called Kids Say the Darndest Things. And he'd get a group of precocious kids up there, and he'd interview them live on TV. And it would be funny. That was entertainment back then, and it was funny. And kids do say some special things. Certain kids are known for it. I've got some in my family. But this is the issue here. If a little one prays, it's, parents, it's your responsibility to follow up. And as she grows and develops the cognitive ability to understand greater what her relationship is with Christ, you should not assume anything. You need to be sure that she wasn't just praying a prayer by mimicking you. Why? Because this is eternity. There are some folks in this audience who can tell you that they heard that prayer from that little boy or girl. And then years later, they walked out turning their back on everything they had been taught. Be clear that your children, as they age, they understand the gospel I'm saying these things because I truly believe it is more loving to pass on this warning than just to assume the best. 
to be clear also here on another front, just like with right beliefs, of course, the truly saved do say these things. They pray the prayer asking Jesus to come into their hearts. But why? If we, if we want to be honest about it, it's so that he can come in and clean out the sewage. The words or the prayers by themselves do not save. And the surprised people in this passage say all the right things. Lord, Lord. But recall, the devils believe that he is Lord. They called him the Holy One of God, but they're still devils. And the person who says he's a Christian because he says and believes the right things is actually trusting in his own faith, his own statements, not the grace of God through faith in the works of Christ on the cross for his undeserving soul. Some people, you know, believe that they're Christians because they were born in the United States. Some people in the church believe they're Christians because they were sprinkled as an infant. And others believe they're Christian because they become official members of a church. So what's the difference? Simply making certain statements do not save anybody. A person can say all the right things and be a total reprobate. Be deceived in thinking that he or she is saved. Paul says this in a passage I think you're probably familiar with out of 1 Corinthians 6. Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers, will inherit the kingdom of God. And so the people who lay out the words, the simple prayer as the key to heaven, as sufficient for salvation, can be deceivers even without realizing it. Your lifestyle is not what saves you, but it is evidence of what we call regeneration, without which a person who thinks is saved based upon the recitation of words may very well hear the words on that day, I never knew you. And then Paul points a finger and says something rather surprising. And such were some of you. To whom was Paul writing? Church in Corinth, right? And in the Corinthian church, there were people who had been fornicators, adulterers, idol worshipers, thieves, greedy, alcoholics, wicked, dishonest. And yes, folks from Westboro, there were not just people with same-sex attraction, but there were people who were carrying out homosexual acts. What did Paul say to those people whose lifestyle would disqualify them from the inheritance of the kingdom of God and who the Bible calls wicked sinners? However, Praise God for that, however. Because we're all in that former group. However, you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. Yes, you can be caught up in a life of sin and destruction, 
nasty, terrible stuff, no matter how wretched and twisted, and then, yes, you can be washed clean. Is there any better news than that? However, there's another however. One must actually believe and understand certain things. The first one is why a person needs to be washed. You know, I have one unique distinction. I am the only one to be the first to see a certain series of events in the universe. That is the birth of all of our children. Now, believe me, there are other people who were there. I didn't do this by myself, thankfully. Uh, but I was the only one to be at all of them. And I was the first one because Christy was preoccupied with other stuff, like pushing. Okay? And you know what happens when a child is born. If you've ever been in a, in a birth, everybody loves a baby. And even if you're not, even when they bring them out, oh, she's so cute, she's so beautiful. Who's a baby hater here? I mean, nobody is. But if we look at this biblically, we've got to understand that those sweet, cuddly little things are little sinners. Yeah. That's something that every first-time parent learns before the age of two, right? I know I've got a little sinner on my hands by then, all right? And in fact, Paul tells us, all, that means everybody, even those little babies have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Well, this, in, this whole thing involves more than words, a prayer, or even right beliefs. There must be, with that prayer, confession and true repentance for that sin, and what we call regeneration. That is, turning your back on those evil practices and following Jesus. First John 1 says, if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Acts 2, Peter said, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the gift for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. And we must be washed clean by something, and that is the blood of Christ. Ephesians 2, But now, in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. 1 John 1, If you walk in the light as he is... He is in light. We have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus cleanses us from all sin. In Revelations 1, Jesus loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood. We've got to understand, by what? The next thing, we, reason or cause of this self-deception we want to talk about is a failure to examine myself. This can be difficult for some well-meaning evangelicals. You know, we often hear people say, look to Jesus, focus on him. I mean, I've said that, okay? Uh, 
But if we stop there, the implication is that to consider oneself is, well, selfish. And uh, they confuse self-examination for self-centeredness and refuse to look at their own hearts. Or the other possibility is that you, you can look at, if you look at yourself, you know, people will say, you're only going to see darkness and sin. So focus on Jesus and have positive thoughts. Well, focusing on Jesus does not mean that you fail to look at yourself to test whether you are in the faith and have met the test. Paul says, 2 Corinthians 13, examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves. Or do you not realize this about yourselves, that Jesus Christ is in you? Unless, indeed, you fail to meet the test. Yeah, he calls it a test, an examination. Now, the risk of failing or refusing to examine oneself can, is that you can find yourself slipping into a thing called antinomianism. That's a 75-cent word for sure. Okay? And Greek roots, anti-against, nomos, law. And the antinomi was a German sect in the 15th century that believed that Christians had no obligation to follow the moral law of God. Today, it's used to describe the belief that whenever a Christian concentrates on conduct, he is putting himself under the law. So therefore, an antinomianist today believes that as long as a person believes on the Lord Jesus Christ, it does not matter what he does or how he lives his life. What do you think Jesus thinks about that? I would suggest that Christianity is a life to be lived. We are to be partakers of the divine nature. Can you and I look at each other in the eyes and say we are partakers of the divine nature if there's no change? Without regularly examining ourselves in light of his words, which describe that very nature? In 1 Peter 1, we see this over and over again. The life of a Christ follower is more than just words and belief. It's actually following Christ. It's not perfection, but it is effort, seeking and moving towards genuine righteousness, which only comes from self-examination. Failure to examine oneself leads to a kind of blindness. When we are deceived into thinking that our ticket to ride is to say we believe certain things, we stop looking at our own lives compared to God's Word. We can even forget the abundant promise of God to cleanse because we don't see the need. And through regular self-examination and the resultant remolding, 
constant practice of faith, virtue, knowledge, self-control, steadfastness, godliness, brotherly affection, and love, basically the character of Christ. We don't earn salvation, but we can reach a rock-solid assurance of our calling and election. The Apostle John was more direct. The book of 1 John was written to address this very problem of those who say they have fellowship with him, yet walk in darkness. And John called these people liars who do not not practice the truth. And in chapter 2, he gives this test of true discipleship for assurance. And by this we know, we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commandments. Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word in him truly, the love of God is perfected. By this, we may know that we are in him. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. This is what it means to be a follower of Christ. For John to say this so bluntly, means that there were folks claiming to be Christ followers and in fellowship with him, but whose lives were full of sin. They were wrecks. According to the New Testament, a person who claims Jesus as Lord and Savior, yet whose habits of life are sinful, who's characterized by sin, who has not taken those statements and made them a part of his being, is a liar, a hypocrite, maybe an unconscious hypocrite, but nonetheless not saved. Now, I know what you're thinking. We're all sinners. So how do we know that we're saved? Well, John just gave you a pretty good hint. Keep his commandments. But on an ongoing basis, the primary way to discover this and to peel back the veil of self-deception is to have, for, to have real assurance of salvation is self-examination. We've got to examine ourselves in light of the commandments and all the scriptures, including the Sermon on the Mount. And this examination needs to be carried out with honesty, painful honesty with ourselves. And even if we find ourselves doing good to ensure it's not just a cover-up and part of our self-deception, we need to examine our motives Am I doing good and right things, even in the name of Jesus, but for my own building up and my own glory? And if we don't do this consistently, we are leaving ourselves vulnerable to debilitating doubt at best, if not, at worst, eternal punishment. In a few minutes, uh, Bill Bider is going to come back up, and he's going to lead you in the Lord's table. And in that process, you're going to have a time of quiet reflection. Please, please don't waste that time thinking about what you did yesterday or some game you might watch today. This is a time to self-examine, to think if there's anything between you and God or between the person sitting next to you. This is a time to deal with that. We do that here. People ask forgiveness before they come and get the the elements from somebody. But it's also a time 
to examine, is my life reflective of one who is a follower of Christ? In fact, the more we examine ourselves on our own, the greater our assurance will be. Another common cause of self-deception is when we rely upon our activities, our busy lifestyles. And we've got to ask each of us this question. If sickness or injury were to prevent me from doing what I do on a daily basis, would my life have meaning? You know, we've all heard stories of people who are healthy, and they retire, and then we're surprised to hear just a couple of years, maybe a few months later, they die. And what about the sweet love stories that we've heard about after a long, long marriage, one spouse passes on, and then shortly thereafter, the other? Now, I'm not making judgments about any of that, But is it possible in those situations that those people lost their purpose in life and because they were laying up treasures on earth rather than heaven, whether a life work or a beloved spouse? Those are all treasures on earth. The same is true of those who believe they're saved. They can rely on their activities, many of them very, very good for their assurance. Now, I'm I'm confident of my salvation, but this has caused me some soul-searching, honestly. Uh, What would I do if I could not serve the Lord as I think I'm trying to do right now in this stage of my life? Would my life have meaning? But thankfully, God has caused me to think through this and think about the consequences of relying upon my salvation for my purpose. I've come to this conclusion. I'd rather be totally paralyzed. Far better for me, even if it meant all I could do is lay there and praise God for the life that he's given me and the life in eternity that he's promised. Rather than to continue in my present life under under the delusion that my purpose is in my activities, is in what I do. I don't have time to go into it, but if you think of characters you've heard about, Amy Carmichael and John Bunyan, they had their lives interrupted severely, and yet they used those periods of time to do great things for God. Now, this is another reason to regularly stop and examine ourselves, how much we hold on to, depend upon what we do for our purpose in life. And if one finds himself saying, you know, really, I would have no purpose without this activity or doing that, he's really saying that because he thinks he knows better than God. Uh, He knows more what he needs than God does. That might be a big red flag that one is self-deceived by relying upon his own activities for his salvation and not the work of Christ on the cross. 
A more garden variety cause of self-deception is when people become convinced by their conscience of some sin and then they either recall some good deed in the past or they go out, they get involved in, in charitable work to assuage the guilt, to balance the scales. I mean, that's the picture, isn't it? You know, uh, say somebody's up there at the pearly gates with scales, right? To balance the good and the bad. And to clarify, we've said that obedience, including good works, are an evidence of salvation when they flow from the heart, when they're genuine expressions of love. But people go astray when they engage in good works for the purpose of trying to cancel out their sin. I think, I think this notion is so common, it's a major stumbling block for the lost, both in and out of the church. But this is exactly what Jesus is addressing here in this passage. When our conscience starts to warn us, we need to take heed, confess, repent, and thank God that Jesus paid the price for our transgressions. We should never fall into that trap, as many have, that somehow there's a ledger and that we can balance out those sins with good works. The last cause we're going to consider today for self-deception is the failure to realize that the one and only thing that matters is our relationship to Christ. He's the one who's going to look at us and make that great judgment call on that day. Can you imagine the feeling, the horror of the person who thought he or she was saved to hear, I never knew you? What does Jesus mean by the word knew? He's omniscient. Of course he knows all about us. Now, he knows in a sense because he does not have that personal relationship of unity, of oneness, just like a husband and wife with that person. Jesus will say to many self-deceived people that they that what they thought was earning them salvation was all in their own power, and he was no part of that. Yeah, the life of a a Christ follower will result in good fruit. But if the fruit is the result of our own efforts and activities and attempts to make the cut, we will have unwittingly cut ourselves off from that relationship of being one with Christ. The only thing that we can look to for that, that relationship is acceptance of his work on the cross. You know, the uh, Monday night meetings that the men have been having uh, concerning purity have been a great encouragement for all of us. M- Many, if not most, of the men here are attending, as well as men from other churches. Okay? Um, you know, and there's a danger in attending because you, people think maybe you're admitting something. But I'm, you know, uh, while all men are tempted, we know that. All right? I'm confident that, from what I know, most of the people attending don't struggle greatly with the issue of purity. But they know others who do, and they want to know how someone can be free from the enslavement to lust. And you know, I'm likewise confident that this message today doesn't apply to most of you. 
However, Jesus says many will be in this position of self-deception when it's too late to change course. You may think, I've implied that you're not saved. That's not my intent at all. While I'm confident due to the fruit that I see in the lives of most lion and lambers, none of us can know about another person's salvation other than Jesus. Each of us must make and can only be sure of our own calling and election. We can also be sure that most of the people out there do not, most of them do not get it. And we should all hope and pray and witness so that maybe they will get it. As this passage was opened up to me, uh, it became clear to me that this is the most alarming of all the Word of God and therefore deserving of extra attention. So, if you've been pricked or maybe even offended by what's been said today, I urge you, because these are Jesus' words, to examine your hearts, to make yourselves sure. Why? Why would I say all these things about Jesus' words? Because I care about you. Now, I know this message has been largely negative, so let's end on a positive note here. What does Jesus, what does God want from us? He says it in many, many different ways. But the answer is He wants our hearts, He wants our inner being, our submission. In short, he wants us completely. He wants more than our words, our enthusiasm, or even our good deeds. In uh, 1 Samuel 15, the prophet rebukes King Saul because he did not completely destroy all the Amalekites and their possessions as he had been commanded. And Saul responds, well, the The sheep and the goats you hear bleeding, we saved to make a sacrifice to God. You know, a good deed. Samuel's response. Has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice. You know, much more than our sacrifice. He wants our submission. He wants our obedience. He wants our whole hearts. He wants all of us. Father in heaven, you are great and awesome, and you loved us enough to have your Son warn us over and over and over again that many will be deceived, whether by false prophets, or by themselves. And few will actually find it. Lord, our prayer today is that everybody here will understand what it means to follow Christ. Will not rely upon words, deeds, or anything else other than the sacrificial gift of Jesus paying for our sins because that's the only way you could forgive us. Thank you, Father, for the privilege of being here and being your servants. Keep us humble. 
keep us looking to you, but constantly self-examining and making sure that we've removed all doubt. Thank you for that assurance that you give. We, we ask all these things in the precious and holy name of Jesus. Amen.